you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's word. I'll read for you from Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, just to give the fuller context. And then we'll be looking specifically this morning at verses 19 and 20. Romans chapter 1, beginning verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. We have been working our way through Romans, Romans 1, and specifically Romans 1, verses 15 through 18. And the whole premise of these verses is based upon Paul's statement in verse 15. Notice in verse 15 in your Bibles that Paul is eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. We need to get this right so that we understand this letter correctly. Paul, as we've noted, gives reasons why he is eager to preach the gospel. We need to, I think, seek to have these same uh, reasons for ourselves. And he says, first of all, in verse 16, I am eager to preach the gospel because the gospel is nothing to be ashamed of. There are things and, you know, conversations that you and I might have, and there would be some topics that, depending on who's there, you would just say, I'm not going to talk about that. It would be too shameful to talk about such things. I believe sometimes we as Christians, uh, we, we believe what God has done, but it seems so extraordinary, and it is. It seems overly miraculous, and so it is. But what happens then, we're like, how do I tell somebody this? Because they might think I'm crazy or foolish. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to speak of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. I'm not ashamed of saying he lived a a righteous life and that he came and he healed diseases and he raised the dead. But most importantly, I'm not ashamed that he went to a cross to bear the punishment for the sins of his people. And there he died, truly died, and he was buried in the tomb And yet, three days later, miracle of miracles, he was raised from the dead, never to die again. And he said that all who believe in him, that believe he has done that on their behalf, they shall not perish, but they will have the hope of eternal life. And they will, too, be with Christ, with the Father. Paul's not ashamed of that. There's nothing shameful in that message. There's nothing that we should cower and fail to communicate about it. We also saw in verse 16 that Paul is eager to preach the gospel because, well, it's the only thing that brings salvation. Uh, There's so many people that want deliverance and want peace and want happiness and they want hope and they're looking to everything and everything, everything, anything and everything except the one message that will bring them eternal life. And that is the gospel that tells us about Christ. He says, 
This, is the, this brings salvation to everyone who believes. Why would I not be eager to preach it? If you don't hear it, you can't believe it. If you don't believe it, you will die in your sins. Why would I not be eager to preach the gospel? Paul is eager to preach the gospel according to verse 17 because in it he says the righteousness that comes from God is revealed. A righteousness that is alien to ourselves. We are sinners. We, we are alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds against God. But when Christ comes and we believe on him, God imputes his perfection and his righteousness to us. That's the righteousness from God that allows a person to be saved, that justifies the sinner, that he's made right in the eyes of God so that he can now receive from God every blessing that Christ has offered that he can be received into heaven. And all of this is found in what? The good news, this message concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. Then in verse 18, Paul gives us a fourth reason why he is eager to preach the gospel. And that reason is because the wrath of God is presently revealed. It is now being manifested against all persons who are ungodly and unrighteous. He identifies for us that there are really only two kinds of people. There are only the unrighteous and ungodly, or there are the righteous and the godly. And you need to know which camp you are in. Because if you are in the ungodly and unrighteous camp, you are presently under the wrath of God. You say, well, my life seems pretty good right now. Well, it really isn't as good as it ought to be. And it is certainly not as good as it's going to be when the fullness of God's wrath comes in the final day. And so this, full, this wrath is, is being stored up, Paul will actually say later. And there are those, the ungodly, who are acting as though there is no God. Such persons pretend that God doesn't exist, that I can do whatever I want. I can call my own shots. I can live the way I want to. I can live in a manner contrary to all that archaic teaching that's found in what they call the Bible. This wrath is against all such persons, ungodly, also all unrighteousness, which we said last week speaks of our sinful actions towards others. Beloved, no one sins in a vacuum. You may have private sins that you say, well, no one else knows, and they don't affect anybody because I play them in my mind. I promise you, according to the word of God, it has an impact upon others. You may not see it directly, but it will impact your relationships, and it will never be for the better. Paul is eager to preach the gospel because if a person does not receive the good news, then he is still under God's wrath. Remember, we looked at John 3:36 that he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on him, presently under the wrath of God. It is this revelation of God's wrath, this present manifestation of his anger towards sin, of his abhorrence towards anything that is unrighteous and sinful, his vengeance against sin that is currently being manifested and will ultimately and overwhelmingly be manifested in the future against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. And Paul says, this is why 
I am eager to preach the gospel. People need to know something. And you know, one of the last things we might think about that people need to know is this. God is angry with sin. God abhors sin. And so Paul is making his case that God is angry because of their sin and that he is justified in their anger. And anger that is that if it is not satisfied by what we call the propitiation of Christ, the big word there simply meaning that the sacrifice of Christ turns away the wrath of God. It soothes the anger of God unless you receive that gift of the propitiation of Christ by faith. If you do not respond to the gospel, which Paul is so eager to uh, preach, it will result in eternal condemnation and eternal damnation. And beloved, Paul says, I don't want that for anyone. I would hope that every one of us in this room would say, I wouldn't wish that upon anyone. Paul, later in this letter, is so wrapped up with this very thought that the wrath of God is coming upon his kinsmen those of his own ethnic group. And he says, I wish that I could be accursed if it would mean the salvation of these others. He's eager to preach the gospel because he knows that unless you believe, the wrath of God will come upon you and you will perish in your sins. Now let me make a couple of observations before we move on in our text. First, we've painstakingly considered these reasons why Paul is eager to preach the gospel. And then beginning in verse 18, Paul introduces us. He's shifting. There's kind of a a transition in verse 18 as to telling us now not only why he's eager to preach the gospel because of the wrath of God, but he also tells us that the wrath of God is not just future. It's here now in the present. The rest of chapter 1 is essentially an exposition on the wrath of God. We've considered the gospel. Now Paul's going to take some time to tell his readers, the Spirit's going to take some time to inform us of what unrighteousness and what ungodliness actually looks like and why it invites the wrath of God. But Paul will not stop with only the most wicked. I think we'd all be here. Yeah, those wicked, evil people that do the things there in chapter 1, they deserve the wrath of God. But in chapter 2, Paul says, wait a minute. Those of you that think you're not as bad as these wicked people because you're seeking to do, well, more good than bad, we call you the moralist. If you think your moralism is going to save you, no, you're still under the wrath of God. And then he moves on in chapter 2, in the second half of chapter 2, and he says, well, some of you are going to say religion. I'm a religious person. I go to church. Our church is a a good church, and they they do good things for people in the community. And and my religion and keeping all of these rituals and saying all the right prayers, well, that's going to save me. And Paul says, no, that's not going to save you either. And then he gets to chapter 3, and he brings it all to a culmination. And you're very familiar with the words after saying, hey, the wicked deserve the wrath of God. The moralist deserves the wrath of God. The religious deserve the wrath of God. Paul says, hey, in chapter 3, I'm going to say this to you. There's no one righteous, not even one. 
and he'll culminate that with the statement that you're so familiar with, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, we come all the way back to chapter 1, verse 18. This is why the wrath of God is being revealed. Because people act as if there's no God. Because people think they're good enough and don't need God. Because people think that keeping a religious ritual will save them. And that, my friends, is ungodliness. And that, my friends, is unrighteousness. Paul will come to this conclusion if you wanted to look in Romans chapter 3, verse 24. After saying in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he's saying every person stands condemned. Every person will suffer the wrath of God unless, unless according to Romans 3, 24, they are justified, that is declared righteous. That is, if they receive the righteousness which comes from God, Romans 1, 17, as a free gift of his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Beloved, you only have these two options. You either are found in the righteousness which comes from God, or you are under the wrath of God. Who are you? While Romans 1.18, we noted, is properly and grammatically belonging to the ideas that flowed from verse 15, it does stand on its own as it introduces us to the reality of God's wrath, which we noted last week. But now we're looking at verse 19. And in verse 19, Paul begins to expound the reasons for God's wrath. We've mentioned them in general. We answer the question, why is it that God is so angry? Does he have a right to be angry? Is it okay for God to be angry against sinners? How do we explain God's abhorrence to those who, according to verse 18, this is what they do. This is what really, if we can put it in this language, irks God. They suppress the truth by the way they live. Remember verse 18? They're trying to hold down what the truth is. They see the truth. They, they note the truth. And yet they're trying to hold it down. They try to cover it up. And how do they do that? By the way they live their life. You either live your life in accordance to Christ and his ways. Any other way is a suppressing of the truth. Because there's no one righteous, not even one. At least from the human standpoint. But there is one whose righteousness may be yours. And that is Christ the Lord. Those who suppress the truth suppress all of the truth. They suppress the teachings, the doctrines, the marvels, the miracles of God, and they do it by practicing their unrighteousness. And there's an application, I think, for us as before we move on. And that is, as Paul defines for us in chapter 1, what is unrighteousness, what is ungodliness, we must ask ourselves in this room, I'm looking at you and most of you I know and most of you I've heard testimonies that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question is this, why would we want there, we would, why would we allow any one of these things that's found in chapter 1 or chapter 2 to be true of us? 
may it be that none of these things would ever be found in us, that we would not be the practicers of unrighteousness. For those of you who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ, to those of you who say, I'm not sure I have this need of faith in Christ. I don't know that I need to follow Christ so earnestly. I don't know that I need to obey him. I pray that the Spirit of God would open your heart today to understand the evilness of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, the utter, utter ugliness of sin as it stands contrary to everything who God is. It stands against everything about what God does. And it stands, beloved, against everything the image of God within you is supposed to emulate. We are not created for sin. We were not created to be half-hearted towards God. We were not created to, to, to split up our time and be sometimes holy and sometimes not. God says, I will be the Savior of all of you, not half of you or a quarter of you. We need to have a proper appreciation then of the wrath of God against sin and sinners. We need to understand it because it magnifies the holiness of of God. It magnifies the separateness of God, how distinct he is. It, it magnifies this, that the righteousness we read of, of Christ, when you read the Gospels and you see the life of Christ, you should be going, that man, the God-man, he lives a completely different way, so beyond those around him. It was so Incredible for many who saw him that they followed him. And so it ought to be for us that we see the righteous behavior and actions of Christ as so marvelous that we could do nothing else but follow him. We need to recognize that that's an alien righteousness and yet a righteousness that can be ours by faith if we believe in the person and work of Christ, a faith that brings us God's righteousness rather than his wrath. So that, as Paul will say later in Romans 8.1, isn't this a great verse in light of all of that? There is therefore, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus, which is shorthand for saying, found in the righteousness of Christ. Beloved, we need a proper appreciation of the wrath of God as it is necessary for a right understanding of the gospel. Because the wrath of God is poured out on sin, the presentation of the gospel begins then with an understanding of human sin. You will not ever share the gospel. You have not understood the gospel if you do not have some comprehension of sin and how much God hates sin. Because until a person recognizes he is a sinner under the wrath of God, he will never be aware of the danger his soul is in. This is why Paul is eager to preach the gospel, and this is why he begins his presentation of the gospel with God's wrath being directed upon anything and everything and everyone that is ungodly and unrighteous. It is only after he presents the depth of humanity's sin. It's only after we feel like, this has been heavy, Paul. You've just dumped all of this. There's no means of salvation through my own efforts. My wickedness condemns me. My moralism condemns me. My religion condemns me. 
What shall I do? That's when Paul says, okay, now you're at the bottom. Now we can start talking about what it means to be saved, what it means to be made righteous. And so it is only after this presentation of humanity's sin that he will state the solution. And what is the solution? If it's not the work of my hands, then it must be by the grace of God. Paul knew that God's mercy is only properly appreciated when people comprehend as fully as possible their need for God's mercy. If you don't think you need God's mercy, you're not going to come all the way to him. The grace of God is displayed most resplendently against the dark backdrop of our own rebellion and guilt. Well, so let's this morning look at the reasons for God's wrath. Uh, we'll be looking eventually all the way through verse 23, but this morning we're going to consider the first two of four points from this larger text. We're going to be looking through uh, uh, this week and next week four reasons why God's wrath is revealed against those who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, meaning that they are rejecting the person and precepts of God and how they live their lives. And so I submit to you that what I'm going to call truth suppressors, okay, you're either a truth upholder or you're a truth suppressor. But truth suppressors reject the reality of God. They reject the revelation of God. They re reject the respect due to God. And they reject the reverence of God. But we're going to look at those first two and consider what it means, what it looks like to suppress the truth and how this invites the wrath of God. And we begin with this first premise that truth suppressors reject the reality of of God. Look at verse 19. Paul writes, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now let me just pause for a moment to put this into context. Who are the them in verse 19? The them are those who are ungodly and unrighteous. The them are those who suppress the truth in their behavior in their unrighteousness. So I find it fascinating where Paul begins with these reasons why sinners experience the wrath of God. And the first truth is that they the that is rejected by truth suppressors is the knowledge of the reality of God. Now they actually know that there's a God. We're going to see that, but they try to pretend he's not there. They reject the notion at least verbally, but internally it is impossible for them to do. They're simply trying to hold back, hold down that truth. They're trying to put a, a cap on it. They're trying to keep back the, the waves from coming up on the ocean. Have you ever done that if you've been to the ocean and I you know, try to lay my body out there and I only sort of thwart a little bit of the water for a few seconds before everything just washes over me. That's what these people are seeking to do. Now, typically, when we think about the knowledge of God, we are drawn to the scriptures, right? Where, where are we going to go to get the knowledge of God? And the first place we're going to say is, well, go read your Bible. We might say to a new believer, go read the gospel of John, everybody, that's where, go read the Gospel of John, and, and you'll get some knowledge of the Scriptures. This is, the Scriptures are what God has disclosed to us about himself through the, through the Word. But in this verse, Paul is speaking of what may be known about God, listen carefully, apart from the Bible. 
He's saying, I don't even need to start with scriptures to prove to you that God exists. I don't have to come up with philosophical arguments. Paul is about to lay waste to the argument that a person can only know that there is one true God through the scriptures. Doesn't that almost sound heretical? But that's what Paul's teaching. Let me pause to make mention that what Paul speaks of here in verses 19 and 20 is referred to as general or natural revelation. There's two kinds of revelation that we're familiar with, general or natural revelation, and then there is special or supernatural revelation. General revelation, natural revelation is that which may be known about God, what we may know about God simply by nature, simply by creation. Paul's going to say it's even more than that. It's not just about what you can see out there. It's about what you know in here. Isn't that amazing? So there's something built into every human being that tells them there is one true God. We call this natural or general uh, revelation. We To know that God exists, to know that he is the creator, to know that we are creatures, to know that uh, uh, that, there, that there is a creator means that he's infinite and wondrous because, well, look at what he's made. Uh, he has power in his person. Uh, this, Paul says, it's all very clearly seen and made abundantly evident by what has been made. And let me just remind you of something. When you think about what is made, I, I think ten, we tend to immediately think of out there, look at the trees. Look at those cute, sweet little raccoons that God has made. But guess what else has been made? You have been made. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Every human being fearfully and wonderfully knitted together in the womb is by a miracle and act of the creator God. In other words, the knowledge of the reality of God's existence is never based upon philosophical argument, and it doesn't even need scripture itself. The reality of God's existence is bound up in the very creation in which we live and move and have our being. It is so evident, Paul says, and so clear that it can't be missed by anyone. Everybody sees it. But then why do so many seem to miss it? Well, they're not missing it. They're doubling down. In reality, according to Paul, they, they're not missing it at all. Everyone knows this reality. It is simply that so many spend so much energy suppressing the truth by choosing to live in unrighteousness or sin. And the way people suppress the truth of the reality of God's existence is to live in sin and to live in rebellion and to even live in denial in spite of what's right in front of their face. Every evolutionary teacher knows there's a God who created but they'll say, no, 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 no. I'll say, yes. No, I tell you that you're wrong. And I say, no, the word of God says you're wrong. And I will always take the tried and true word of God over the fallible word of sinful men whose science so often changes and evolves. And so they're living in sin and let me tell you something about sin because we want to talk about the deceitfulness of sin. 
once you begin to deny the reality of God, once you try to pretend he's not there, and sometimes even we as Christians can play into this when we say, you know, uh, we, we have our little hidden sins. We think, well, God doesn't see it. Guess what? You're pretending there's no God. And here's a truth that living in sin begets more sin. That you will continue to sin more and more and you will begin to, uh, Paul talks about searing your conscience. You'll begin to dull the view uh, of the knowledge that God has given you. But it will always be there because you can't suppress it entirely. Notice the word in verse 19, evident. What I would also have you note is Paul uses it two times. And you know my little favorite statement. If an author says something once, pay attention. If he says it twice, really pay attention. He uses this word evident two times. It may actually be translated as manifest or clearly known, but most literally it speaks of something that is shining. And I find that to be a fascinating translation because that which may be known about God is shining within them. They're trying to suppress it. They're trying to darken this particular truth of God's existence, but it's shining, it says, within them. The knowledge of God has a spotlight within the human heart. The only way a sinner has to deal with this knowledge is either to accept it or to try and bury it and suppress it with more sin. But the knowledge God gives of, of, of himself within, notice it says within, it's not obscure, it says. It is not buried and forgotten. It is not something that can only be found by deciphering hidden clues and solving difficult riddles. The truth God gives of himself within every human being is shining so much so that it is, it, uh, so much so and so plainly that no one can legitimately refute it. We'll see that. Paul will say in just a moment, they have no excuse. Now, I know you're sitting there because I do this in my own mind, too. And you're thinking so many people, they refute that. They'll, they'll tell me right to my face. No, you're wrong. But again, I want to emphasize, you know something that they're not fully aware of. You know that they've been deceived and tricked by the devil. You know that their mind is blinded to these things right now. And so do not accept their testimony because it's in error. Accept the testimony of God that says God has, shine, has put a spotlight within their heart to show them that he exists. Now, I'll probably say this again later. This knowledge that God exists, this knowledge that God has created and that we are the creatures does not save anybody. That's not what its intention is for. His intention is simply to tell people there is a God, a true God, a creator God to whom you're accountable, and that knowledge will drive a person to know more about that God. So the reality of God we read in verse 7 and 19 is evident. It is not just out there, but Paul says it's manifest within them, and Paul also says it's been manifested or evident to them. It's been in them, and it's to them. I love that. This is what we call the internal witness. You have something within you. This, this God consciousness, we're going to call it the voice of conscience. We have within us this conscience, this means, this mechanism by which God has placed within every human heart the knowledge that there is a God. 
with every human being, there is this knowledge that God exists. Conscience, according to the Puritan Thomas Brooks, as he noted, is God's preacher in the bosom. He goes on to say, I'm going to find my spot here. Uh, He goes on to say that that conscience acts as a domestic chaplain in the heart, telling us that there is a God. You have a chaplain. I had the privilege of serving as a chaplain in a a, uh, hospital in Grand Junction. And what does a chaplain do? He runs around talking to as many people as he can, talking to them about God. Now, I know not all chaplains do that these days, but that's what the chaplain's supposed to do. You have, it says, this internal, this domestic chaplain that tells you there is a God. Notice that Paul says something else that we don't want to miss. Paul doesn't say that every human heart knows that there are gods out there. He doesn't use the plural at all. It's not that, oh, well, what about these, these polytheistic folks in, in other places in the world? Is, is that the knowledge of God? No, even they know that amongst all these other so-called gods that they may worship, they know in their heart that there is one true God of gods. We might say that the knowledge of the existence of God is written into our DNA. I don't know if they found that strand yet, but there it is. John Calvin in his institutes made a very similar assessment saying this. From this we conclude that it is not a doctrine that must first be learned in school, but one of which each of us is master from his mother's womb and which nature itself permits no one to forget, although many strive and with every nerve to this end. That's the suppressing of the truth, isn't it? Everyone, you can't forget this. Why am I saying this to you? This is God's word speaking to every human. You can tell me whatever you want to tell me. I know the truth. And the truth is you know that there is a God. Calvin goes on to say, There is within the human mind and indeed by natural instinct an awareness of divinity. This we take to be beyond controversy. I'll stop there for a moment. Why? Because God's word says so. To prevent anyone from taking refuge in the pretense of ignorance, God himself has implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty. Since therefore men, one and all, perceive that there is a God and that he is their maker, they are condemned by their own testimony because they have failed to honor him and to consecrate their lives to his will. Wow. To live as if there is no God, to act as if there is no God, to pretend that you don't know there's a God, invites the wrath of God because you know better. Have you ever said that to your child? Or did your parents ever say that to you? Why did you do that? You know better. That there is this knowledge of God within each heart in person makes sense, does it not? Scripture is clear that we are made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. The very fact that we can ponder and create is an expression of the image of God because our God ponders and creates. We can make up arguments and apologies. We can muse and make music. And all of these are an evidence of the image of God within us. And if we do things as a reflection of the image of God, it implies then that there is a God in whose image we've been made. 
I often use this verse to make this declaration, and I've been leading up to this already, but a declaration that so many who want to stand against the, the knowledge of God resist. And the declaration is that there is no such thing as an atheist. There is not one atheist on the face of the earth. Now, I know we're going to go on YouTube, and you can type in atheist, and you're going to see all sorts of people that claim to be atheists. And I'm telling you, according to the word of God, there is no such thing as an atheist. True, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, but that is because he is denying, he's rejecting the reality of what God has already instilled within him. This is what God's word says. He's suppressing, is he not, the evident truth that he is a creature created in the image of God and therefore accountable to God. The so-called atheists will counter with something along the lines. And if there are any atheists listening, I'm sure that they'll, uh, they'll try to come up with a more clever statement than mine, and that's fine. They'll say, but I do not believe there is a God, and I do not believe the Bible says, uh, in the Bible that says there's a God, and I certainly do not believe in Romans 1.19 that says there is within me this knowledge of God, so you have no right to impose this understanding on me. You need to take my word for it when I tell you that there is no God. How do we respond? <laughs> May it never be. <laughs> Uh, I actually had that in my original notes. You're a liar. It might not really mo move the conversation very well. My response, have a possible response. So you're asking me to take your word that there is no God, the word of a clearly fallible human being, as we are all fallible, over the tried and true word of God that has been scrutinized and analyzed and yet found to be continually consistent in what it says and teaches, the word of God that has positively changed lives, positively changed civilizations for centuries, I have no logical reason to take your word above the word of God, and the word of God says that the knowledge of him is evident within you, so you, my friend, have a problem. You are suppressing the truth. The truth is God has manifested this knowledge to everyone. He shows this knowledge to everyone. But there's another naysayer out there, and he's not just the atheist. I want to talk about him. The other naysayer to this verse would be the one who calls himself an agnostic. You, have you heard that term before, an agnostic? The word agnosis means without knowledge what the word means, without knowledge. And the agnostic prides himself. He says, I'm not as militant as a, an atheist. I will never go so far to say as, as there may not be a God, but I can't go as far as to say that there is a God. I don't know if there's a God. I'm an agnostic, meaning that I believe, listen, this is what the agnostic will have to say. I believe that there's insufficient knowledge to know for certain whether God actually exists. You see a problem with that statement in light of verse 19? It's interesting to note that the Latin term to translate this Greek term agnosis is the word ignoramus. So the agnostic is essentially declaring himself to be what? An ignoramus. The danger for the agnostic is that he refuses to acknowledge the God who has clearly revealed himself to them within them. And yet, 
wants to blame God for their situation for saying this. He has not given me enough evidence by which to believe. But what did, what's the word of God say? It is evident. And it's evident, we haven't even gotten to creation yet. We're just saying it's evident within him. And God intentionally, personally, every single person, God made it evident to them. These are unbelievers. God had an interaction with every single person, believer or otherwise, unbeliever, and he said, I want you to have a knowledge that I exist, that I am the creator and you are the creature and you are responsible to me. Can you imagine something more impugning to the character of God but to say, God, you haven't given me enough information to believe that you exist? If the agnostic is right, that there's not enough knowledge, then verse 19 is a lie. But if verse 19 is the truth, then the agnostic has no right to not know. All he is doing is what? You should know the answer to this. He's suppressing the truth in his unrighteousness, and he's actually doing a rather poor job of it. Everything necessary to know that there is one true God is shining within every human heart because God intentionally put it there. Both the so-called atheist and the agnostic are simply inviting the wrath of God because they are willfully and foolishly denying his reality. All people have this natural internal witness of the reality of God. Now, I've already shared this, but I'm just going to make the statement again. Knowing that, there, that God exists is not the same thing as knowing God who saves. Everyone knows that there's a God because that's what the scripture tells us, but there is a special revelation that's needed. And this is why Paul is going to be eager to preach the gospel because ultimately it is the special revelation of how to be made right with the creator you know you are accountable to. So let's consider a second way by which truth suppressors invite the wrath of God upon themselves. Not only do they reject the reality of God, but now in verse 20, they reject the revelation of God. We see in verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his God's invisible attributes, God's eternal power, God's divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So if the voice of conscience that we just spoke of is the internal witness, this awareness of the reality of divinity, then this one here in verse 20 we would call the voice of creation. And this is an external witness. Paul is speaking of that outside of the person. This, there's also evidence outside, not just within, but outside that points to God as existing and being the creator and those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness reject this evidence of creation. They reject creation and therefore the creator. It is because of this rejection of God's reality as known through the conscience and this rejection of the revelation that God is giving through the creation itself that invites the wrath of God. Now, Paul's going to take us all the way back somewhere. If you had to go all the way back somewhere, where would you begin? Where's the beginning of the beginning? Genesis 1-1. And Paul essentially is taking us all the way back to Genesis 1-1, is he not? He says, for since the creation of the world, in the beginning, you say it with me, in the beginning, God created the heavens 
and the earth. I love the way that the Bible starts because it does not seek to prove the existence of God. It assumes the existence of God. You go, well, wait, how does that work? Well, later as the revelation reveals itself, God instilled in every human being this knowledge of him. And since creation of the world, not only this internal witness has been, been proclaiming to you, hey, there's a God, but creation itself has been proclaiming, hey, there is a God. It's kind of a loose translation of what we just read, but that's what it's saying. Paul indicates that it's possible to behold, it's possible to see, ready for this? I love this, the invisible God. How do you see the invisible God? Well, Paul says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen. It's interesting that in the Greek text, it actually reads this way. It's very awkward. That's why the English translators didn't put it this way. But this is how it reads. And I want to read this to you this way because uh, Greek writers would always put what's most emphasized generally in the front of the sentence. So this is the way it reads. For the invisible attributes of him, the invisible attributes of God, since the creation of the world by what has been made, being understood, are clearly seen. Okay? They're ahead of me there. That's not what that is. Okay. Well, that makes for an awkward reading, but it tells us that what Paul emphasizes first is God's invisible attributes are clearly what? Seen. You're seeing something of the invisible God when you rightly consider the creation itself. We learn that these attributes have been constantly revealed since the creation of the world. There's not one time, not one moment since God said, let there be light, that there has not been a testimony that God is, that God is present, that God is real. And the creation reveals this aspect of God. Beloved, God does not leave scraps every now and then for us to pick up and wonder where did this come from. It is not as though God every now and then, every few years or every century or so, drops some big uh, you know, time capsule that says, oh wow, there could have been a God. Every single moment since God said, let there be light, has been a constant revelation of the invisible attributes of God. Every single moment, every single second, anything and everything that is, is a manifestation of the invisible attributes of God. While it is indeed possible for us to ponder the question of where the world came from, and we ask it, where did the world come from? And we, we have scientists that will reason their way back to God, right? Well, we say, hey, everything has a design. Therefore, there must be a designer. That's working your way back to the notion, to this truth that there is a God. There's nothing wrong with that. But we don't have to work our way back. We are not left only with that. Why? Because Paul says, for since the creation of the world, 
His invisible attributes, his eternal powers, divine nature have been what? Clearly seen. They are understood. They are there. And how do we get it? Through what has been made. God is revealing himself through those things that have been made so that his testimony to his nature and his being and his existence is plainly evident to all. How is that for God making it evident? How do we know? I tell you, just go and look around. Spend some time looking at the trees, considering the birds of the air. Look into the heavens at night. Is that not what Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 19 verses 1 through 4 so wondrously announces? It says to us, the heavens are declaring the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pour forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. The heavens that verse says, are presently and continually telling us what? The glory of God. Not the scriptures, but the stars. I'm glad we have the scriptures, but I don't have to only have the scriptures to know that there's a creator God. That's what this verse is saying. And every one of us can go out and gaze upon them tonight, unless, of course, it's sleeting and you can't see the stars. But go on YouTube and look up stars the universe is presently and continually it says declaring the works of his hands so you start saying well how does this manifest the work of god's hands i see the evidence of a creator day by day it says night by night moment by moment there is the revealing of this knowledge of god this proclamation by what has been made speaks a universal language the psalmist writes it is known by all it is heard by all there is no place in which the testimony of creation is not understood so overwhelming is this particular revelation of god a general revelation but it declares him that David must, wrote in Psalm 8, 1, those very familiar words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. But all of this again begs the question, just how good is God's general revelation? I mean, there's a lot of people that seem to dismiss it, right? How good is this revelation, this general revelation of this internal voice of the conscience and this external voice of creation at proving the existence of God, especially to those without the scriptures? We might ask, how effective is general revelation? Can it be that God may actually be known through what is made? Can it be that by what has been made, we can actually know there is a maker? And Paul answers the question, in essence, with a very intense and affirmative yes there is an invisible god who may be seen according to verse 20 by what has been made but what is it that we see of this invisible god god reveals through creation it says in our text two things his eternal power and his divine nature 
What does the eternal power of God tell us? Well, it tells us of God's self-existence. It tells us that he has always been, that he is, and that he will always be. It tells us that we are to see that God is revealed in every leaf of the tree, in every page that we read, in every raindrop that falls, through every composition of music that stirs our hearts, to every sunrise that captures our attention to every sunset that overwhelms us with its beauty, through every creature that crosses our path. Indeed, we are being told all creation is testifying that there is a creator God, and he's wondrous and he's powerful. Beloved, this world in which we live and move and have our being is God's chosen vehicle of divine revelation, whereby to communicate to all people in all places this truth, I exist. To speak of God's eternal power and then his invisible attributes is to speak of God's immutability that he never changes. It is to speak of his omniscience that he knows all things. It is to speak of his omnipotence that he's all-powerful. It is to speak of his omnipresence that he's everywhere. And all of this is consistent with deity. And may I remind you that not one of those truths, how do I want to say this? I don't know if I wrote this the way I want to. That these truths can be discerned apart from Scripture. That's a lot. In other words, creation is telling us a lot more than we give creation credit for. And creation tells unbelievers a lot more than we as Christians often give creation credit for. We need to do a better job. All of these things, Paul says, are not only clearly seen, they're not only plainly revealed, he says they are clearly seen, they are plainly revealed, but then he adds this other statement, being understood. It's not like, I don't get it. And I, how many people have told you, I don't get it. How can you believe that God created all the, uh, the, everything in the world in the space of six days and all very good? Because, well, the Bible tells me that. We, we're quick to go to the scriptures. But creation itself tells you that. Creation says there's this, there is a creator. Everyone knows there is a God. Everyone knows that God created the world and that they are the creatures. But there will be someone who says that if this is true, then how is it that so many reject it? The scriptures inform us that this is true of every soul, that every soul knows these things. But rather than receive and rejoice in the truth, I'm going to go back to verse 18. This is what sin does to you. It causes you to expend energy to try to hide the truth, to try to suppress that truth. It is not that people do not know the truth. It is that they do not like the truth. They do not like the implications that there is a creator and that they are creatures and that makes them accountable to God. Well, that moves us to the very last statement there in verse 20, what I've entitled man's apologies. Man's apologies. Paul writes, this is so clear. It is so evident the internal testimony within them, given to them, the external witness of creation itself is so plainly uh, revealed, so clearly understood that they are what? Without excuse. We do not want to forget 
that we are being given reasons why God's wrath is revealed even now against all who are ungodly and unrighteous. We've already considered that suppressors of the truth deny the reality and the revelation of God is given through what has been made, that is through creation itself. Paul now gives the rationale for the revelation of God's wrath, saying that because, all, because of all that God has revealed to humanity, everything that God has made points to him. Because of this, they are without excuse. Now, that phrase translated without excuse is actually one word in the Greek, and it's ana, uh, ana apologetus, ana apologetus. It does, if it does not sound familiar yet, it's because it's a compound word of a, meaning no or without, and the word apologia. Now, that sounds like something, doesn't it? It sounds like apology, hence the title there, apology. What is an apology? Contrary to our modern English usage of an apology as being saying, I'm sorry for something, an apology is giving a defense. It's giving a reasonable and rational reason why you behave a certain way or believe a certain thing. And the word of God says that because of all that God has communicated, there's not one who can put up an apology, a defense against this to say, God, you're wrong. God, you're wrong. Paul's conclusion to the truth that God has clearly and plainly and constantly revealed himself and his reality through the revelation of his nature, both internally and externally, is that they, all those who suppress the truth, are without apologies. They are without a defense. They are without a reasonable and rational explanation. Now, I love to go on to YouTube at times, and I'll watch these science, secular scientists give all of their reasons and rationales for why they believe in the theory of evolution and why they believe in, in the billions of years and all of this. And ultimately, I come back, wait a minute. They're just trying to find ways to do what? Suppress the truth. And they make it sound reasonable. And because it sounds or seems reasonable, so many people go, well, that must be so. I mean, they wear a white coat. They get paid lots of money. And so that must mean they know what they're talking about. When the unbeliever is called to stand before God in that great and final day, Paul says that there will be no one able to say, God, I did not know that you were there. If only you had made your revelation clearer to me, then surely I would have been an obedient servant. As a pastor, I've heard some pretty lame excuses in my day, excuses intended to justify sinful behavior. But in the end, all I need to do is come back to the original statement, the original question, have you or have you not violated a command of Scripture? So often, rather than answering that question, because I'll ask, have you or have you not uh, 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 violated a command of, of God? Well, yeah, but let me tell you about this. And they go off on some tangent, and they'll say, well, this person did this to me, and therefore what? What does that mean? Well, does that justify violating God's commandment? So just answer the question. Be human. Stand up and, and just tell the truth. Have you violated a commandment of Scripture? If yes, then repent and do what's necessary to make corrections in your life. 
It does not matter how many other good things you have done. It doesn't matter how many sins have been committed against you. I'm not asking what others have done against you. I'm asking you this one question. Have you violated a commandment of God? For some of you, that commandment is this one. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you have not believed yet. Yeah, but I've got all these, I don't care about anything else. I'm asking you to answer the question. Have you believed? If not, repent and have your life corrected. In the final day when unbelievers stand before God and they are asked if they have violated God's commands, Paul says they will have no excuse. They won't be able to go back to something as as petty as, well, I didn't even know that you were there. Because God says, no, I told you clearly. They will have no defense. When asked why they did not respond to this revelation of his existence and of his being, they cannot say, I do not know. Such a plea of ignorance will be nothing but an empty plea that condemns their soul to hell. As we close, let me offer you this one simple application. Have you rightly and recently considered the testimony of creation concerning the existence and the revelation of God and his power and divine nature? Do you pause to ponder the God who made all things in the space of six days and all very good? Do you, even as creation itself does, tell of the glory of God and declare the work of his hands? Do you day after day and night after night pour forth speech that points others to the reality and the revelation of God? May the simple resolve of David found in Psalm 9-1 be our own when he said, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders, which includes creation, and it includes salvation. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the great wonder of your revealing yourself to us not only through the pages of scripture and we thank you that there's such a an even more clear and even more precise and more wondrous revelation of who you are in the word of God but may we just give you praise this morning that you have revealed yourself through creation and you have revealed yourself within us may we marvel at such things May we delight in such truths. Father God, our great desire through all of this is to not just know that you exist, but to know of the salvation that you have sent to us in and through your son, Jesus Christ, this righteousness which comes from God. Father God, I pray that we would delight in Christ through whom this whole world was made but delight in him not only for that, but delight in him who has brought salvation to those who believe on him. May it be that Christ is ours, that Christ is mine forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name.